the one thing that encourages me as I see this video and observe the young people of the church. Aren't we blessed to have such a wonderful group of high school young people and young adults? And Jonathan coming to bring the word. And I, I commented, I don't remember who, to somebody in the hall this morning, you know, if I had been as far advanced in things of God that most of the young people in this church are today. Who knows where I'd be now? <laughs> and what a blessing it is to see these wonderful, wonderful young adults. And the thing that strikes me every now and then, too, is I, I see a, a, a young woman or a young man that we could remember was a baby, and you look in their faces now, and you see a mature adult. That's a striking thing, isn't it? Thank God. The Lycus Valley, which lay to the east of Ephesus, was a place of striking beauty and an interest to tourists. Two things contributed to that. One, it was an area that was very, very prone to earthquakes. And after every earthquake, there were fissures that would open up in the earth. There would be new hot springs various vapors emitting from the earth. And people traveled from all over the world to visit the Lycus Valley to bathe in the therapeutic hot springs that would come forth after these earthquakes. Now there was a second factor as well, and that was the Lycus River that flowed down the middle of this valley. And it was fed by a number of tributaries, and these tributaries were filled with various minerals, calcium especially. And so as these streams would come forth and the earthquakes at times would change the terrain, the streams would overflow the ground and leave deposits. And it had a white sheen, almost as if the land were covered with ice. At times the uh, water would cascade over a cliff and begin to form uh, stalactites as if one were in a cavern. Place of striking beauty. Into this region at around 200 B.C., the Seleucid ruler Antiochus III brought 2,000 Jewish families that he forced to leave Babylon and Mesopotamia and occupy this area. And so a very flourishing Jewish community developed, and other Jews came to live there as well. The area was very, very prosperous. The wool from the sheep of that area was special. The minerals that were in the water enabled them to make very special dyes that were famous throughout the world, as famous even as the purple dyes of Thyatira. And so the land prospered. Not only that, it was on the border between Phrygia and Syria, and so it was a natural trade route, and again, prospered because of that trade. A very, very prosperous area. One sign of that prosperity was that in one particular earthquake, the city of Laodicea was totally laid waste. They did not appeal to Rome to help rebuild the city, but the citizens of Laodicea completely rebuilt the city on their own without any help and it was more glorious even than before. There were three cities in the Lycus Valley, Laodicea, which we know from the book of Revelation, 
Hierapolis, which was a, a government center, and Colossae, Colossae being the smallest of the three. In that area, there began to flourish the very embryonic Gnostic sect. We've talked about the Gnostics in previous sermons and lessons. In the lifetime of Paul, Gnosticisms had not completely flourished so that they know they did not at that time yet talk about an urge and a demiurge and all of these things that we've spoken of before, but still there was dualism. Gnosticism was born out of the question of where did evil come from? The origin of evil is something that neither Jew nor Christian nor anyone else has ever been able to adequately resolve. For if God is absolutely good and there is no evil in him and all creation has emanated from God and he could only create good, then where did evil come from? In the Garden of Eden, we could say, well, evil came from Satan. But where did that, Satan, that evil come from that resided in the heart of Satan and caused him to rebel? God could not have created evil. Where did it come from? Philosophically, that's a question that no one has ever been able adequately to answer. And some of the more noble Greek philosophers, as they pondered this, and saying we have many gods, but behind it all, we sense there is the God of gods, the, 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 the primeval being from whom everything else has flowed, and, and why we don't know, but they came to the conclusion that he is essentially good and could not create evil. So where did evil come from? Again, we don't know exactly why they came to this conclusion, but they came to the conclusion that all material things, all physical matter, the passions of humanity, which are a part in their thinking of physical matter, all of this is essentially evil. But this primeval God, this, this, this one whom we really don't know, true spirit, pure and only good, that being true, how could evil matter ever have been created? And here's what they began to teach. That from this mind of pure God there came forth thoughts that are called news. And in time they came to be called eons. And so the first eon from God produced another and another and another and another. And after the chain was very, very long, this last eon down here was so far removed from this holy God that this eon, therefore, created evil. may not make sense, but that's what they decided. Therefore, there was this dichotomy, spirit, always good, material matter, always evil. And out of that then they began to question how then should we live? And they came to decide since we're the only ones that know this, therefore we have this wonderful higher secret knowledge which the rest of humanity doesn't have. And they began to feel very superior. And out of this grew two opposite 
results of life. One was asceticism. As an ascetic, I must do my best to not ever do anything at all that is influenced by physical matter. I will deprive myself of the joy of eating, although I have to eat to live. I will avoid marriage because sexual intercourse must be evil. And all of these things, they became extreme in their asceticism. There was another group of Gnostics who said, well, really, those other fellows who have that point of view have it wrong because what asceticism is doing is giving power to the material things of this life because you have to work so hard to avoid it. Really, we're above all that. Our spirit is up here pure. Our body is material. But our spirit's who we really are, and therefore we'll be indifferent to all of this, and our bodies can just do what they want. Get drunk, uh, be licentious, but it doesn't touch our spirit. And so there were two exactly opposite responses to the Gnostic teaching. Now upon the stage came the Jewish Essenes. The Essenes, in a way, were an extreme form of the Pharisees who they very carefully kept the law of Moses and even went beyond that. They wouldn't build a fire on Sunday, many things. And they began to elevate Moses. So Moses was the intermediary between them and God. They began in their uh, teachings again, to move toward asceticism, very extreme asceticism. They said, since food is material, we therefore have to be careful because it is evil. They would not eat any flesh. They would only eat bread and a mess of vegetables, and they consecrated the people who prepared their meals as priests. And so the cooks were priests as they were boiling turnips or whatever they did. One of the stories I read about this group was that there was one particular Essene who was excommunicated and he died of starvation because he still believed that it was wrong to eat anything not prepared by one of these sanctified priests so all he could eat was grass. And he died of starvation. And so the Essenes had these beliefs. Now among the Jews who were moved into the Lycus Valley around 200 B.C., there were Essenes. And in the Lycus Valley, the Essenes encountered the Gnostics, and they began to blend together, and so there was a Jewish Gnosticism that began to prevail in the Lycus Valley as the Essenes and the Gnostics blended together in this teaching. The Essenes were esteemed by Christians and Jews and others because they were such wonderful spiritual people, and they began to infect the church, and the church began to wonder about all of these things, and they began, like the Essenes, to worship angels, the intermediary between man and God. Paul was in prison in Rome as this was really beginning to develop. A man named Epaphras, and we don't know really how he came to Christ. He may have been one of the Jews who was present on Pentecost. We don't know. But Epaphras came to Christ. He was a native of the Lycus Valley, and he returned to his home region. 
and there began to fervently evangelize, to preach the gospel. And in all three of these cities of the Lycus Valley, a church flourished in Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. And the church began to grow abundantly. And then Epaphras saw the Gnostic tendency beginning to infect these churches that he had planted. He went to Rome to visit Paul. What do I do? Paul had, in prison, met a man named Onesimus, a runaway slave. Onesimus came to Christ. Onesimus was from Colossus, and his master Philemon lived in that city. Paul had met Philemon somewhere. We don't know where. They knew each other. And so Paul wrote a letter to the Colossian church dealing with these issues. Epaphras didn't deliver the letter. He stayed back with Paul in prison. A man named Tychicus, who was a companion of Paul, delivered the letter to the Colossians. Paul wrote three letters to this area. The Colossian letter, the letter to Philemon, saying, I'm sending Onesimus back, now receive him as a brother. But he also wrote the letter that we know as Ephesians. It's interesting, the two oldest manuscripts of this particular epistle does not say to the Ephesians. That's missing. And it's interesting, as you read some of the earliest writings of the Christians, they say this letter really went to the they say it went to the Laodiceans. And it seems that it really was a circular letter that was sent to be circulated among the churches of that region. And so in Colossians, when Paul says, after you read this letter, send it to Laodicea, and then read the one that's going to be coming from there, that really was the Ephesian letter because it was sent as a circular letter uh, to that whole region. An interesting thing. This morning, let's imagine we're the church in Colossae. Here we are, gathered together, and we have this scroll that has just been delivered by Tychicus from Paul, and Paul has urged us to read it. So my fellow Colossians, this morning, we're going to read the letter. Paulos, Apostolos, Christu, Jesudia, Thelematos theu kai Timotheos. Ho adolfos tois in kalasaias hagios hakai. Pistois adolfos in Christu kairis kumen. Kai irene apotheu patros kiamon. Now, of course, we're not to use foreign languages in the public meeting without interpretation. So I will read the interpretation. If you are following along in your Bible, you will find Paul's manuscript doesn't exactly agree with what you have in your Bible because I have gone through this scroll and made adjustments. I have read the original text and in some places have slightly changed the wording of our English Bible to make it clear. My fellow Colossians, let's receive the word from the Apostle. Paul, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Brothers and sisters, aren't we blessed to know that Paul calls us saints and faithful brethren? We have been praying constantly for you, giving thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ ever since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. We also give thanks because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Throughout the world, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. This gospel is exactly what you heard from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ in our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, notice what Paul has just written. It's exactly what we learn from Epaphras. Is there room for innovation? For this reason also, since the day we heard of the establishment of your church, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. I wonder, how does that fit with the teaching that all matter is evil if the Lord Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God? For by him all things were created. Where does that leave room for the eons? Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now that's interesting. The Essenes tell us there is no resurrection because physical matter, the physical body, is nothing. That contradicts what Paul is telling us so that he himself 
will come to have first place in everything. It was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in Him. And that's interesting too. Because the Essenes and the Gnostics have taught us that either angels or eons that stand between us and God, and each of them is a little bit of God's character, a little bit of, of pleroma, each has a piece. But Paul said, it all dwells in Christ, not just a piece. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth are things in heaven. Now, although you, my fellow saints, were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Notice again his fleshly body. How can that accommodate the teaching of the Essenes and the Gnostics? But he has done this to present us holy and blameless beyond reproach. But here's a, here's a big if. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, was made a servant. Well, the gospel which we've heard, <laughs> nothing new. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a servant according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. By fully preaching the word of God, I explain the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been fully revealed to all his saints. Well, that sure doesn't fit what the Essenes and Gnostics are telling us. As a matter of fact, they tell us that unless you've gone through their initiation, and had these secrets revealed, you can't know them. You can't know the mystery. As a matter of fact, you're sworn to be killed if you reveal any of these secrets. But Paul says it has been fully revealed to all of his saints. No secret knowledge. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that a beautiful statement? We fully proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Again, doesn't that contradict the Essenes? 
so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all of you who have not personally seen my face, that your hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and experiencing all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, which results in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says they're hidden in Christ, and we can know it all. <laughs> I say this so that no one will delude you with pervasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, doesn't that contradict the Essenes? In him you've been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, which you two were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, which raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, notice, brothers, rulers, archae, authorities, exousia, two of the, the principal powers of the Essenes and Gnostics. He disarmed them. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Now, the Essenes say we shouldn't eat flesh, we shouldn't drink wine, they have all this stuff. But Paul says, don't anyone judge us in that. Or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, 
the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Now, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not take, do not touch, which refer to things destined to perish with you in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but there are no values really against fleshly indulgence. Matter of fact, you remember one section of the Gnostics mocked the other section because they said that's foolishness. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. But now listen, and these things you also walked when you were living in them, but also put aside these, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and to put on the new self who is being, being renewed through a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him in which there is no place for distinction, such as Greek on the one hand, Jew on the other, any distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised, or barbarian, or Scythian, or distinction between a slave and a free man, but Christ is all and in all. And that, of course, again contradicts the Gnostics and Essenes because of the caste that they tell us do exist. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Isn't that a statement? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ, Richie, dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now whatever you do in word or deed, 
Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I've also been in prison, that I may speak in a manner that is clearly understood. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how you should respond to each person. Brothers and sisters, notice what Paul has said here. If we're dealing with the Essenes, if we're dealing with the Gnostics, even if we're dealing with Pharisees, we need to talk to them respectfully. <laughs> we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will give us the word that to them will be tasteful so they will hear what we're saying. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow slave in the Lord, will bring you information. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your heart. With him, Onesiphus, our faithful and beloved brother, is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner sends you his greetings. Also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of Jewish background, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Your brother Epaphras always labors earnestly for you in his prayers. He prays that in spite of the false teachers that have come among you, you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. I testify for him he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, the church that is in her house. When this letter is rung among you, read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. You, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, that influential leader in Laodicea, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, and that you may fulfill it. You know, brothers, we heard rumors about the Laodiceans and how they're kind of growing lukewarm because they're so wealthy. A fitting exhortation. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment my imprisonment and grace be with you. Thank you, Jim, for the book of Colossians. It was really well, well received. Well, right now, we want to shift gears here and uh, set up preparation for the baptism. So, Faith and Alexi go to this side over here, and the brothers who will be baptizing over here. And uh, we ask that those with children, if you could bring them down so they can participate in this, and uh, we'll get ready. <laughs> 